The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's word this morning, let's make sure we're ready to study by being in fellowship, and if we'll take a few moments of silent prayer, so if you need a time for confession of sin, that's the time to avail yourself of that opportunity, private confession between you and God the Father. And then we'll open in prayer and begin our study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that initiated this perfect solution to all of man's problems in eternity past. There was never a situation, there was never a difficulty, there was never a problem that you did not envision and know about in your omniscience millions and millions of eons before man was ever created. And you devised a perfect plan for the human race. That plan includes a, a salvation by grace and a spiritual life based upon grace. And that everything is dependent upon the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and not on our work at all. Now, Father, as we continue to study the importance of grace and faith and the absence of our works, we pray that you would help us to under, understand these things and challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me. Well, we are in Galatians chapter 4, but let's begin this morning in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 16, before we get back into our passage in Galatians chapter 4. While you are finding your place in Romans 4, I will read from Galatians where we stopped last time just so you have the context in mind. The Apostle Paul is challenging the legalists in Galatia. Remember what happened was that as Paul and his entourage came to Galatia in the first, on his first missionary journey and proclaimed the gospel, at first the, the Galatians thought that he and uh, his followers were Greek gods. They mistook him for, for uh, Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and Paul quickly corrected them of their misinformation and misidentification, and as he communicated the gospel to them of faith alone and Christ alone, they responded uh, quite warmly to the gospel, and there were many who were saved in the various cities in that area, in Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. Uh, 
And then as Paul moved on and they concluded their first missionary journey and he went back to their home church in Antioch of Syria, another group moved in behind him. And we call them Judaizers because their message was basically Christ is not enough. Faith alone is not sufficient. You have to have faith plus obedience to the Mosaic Law. They were Jewish believers who were emphasizing the physical relationship to Abraham, that it was physical descent from Abraham that was critical in salvation. And so if you weren't born a Jew, then you had to proselyte into Judaism, and that meant if you were a Gentile, you had to be circumcised and you had to come in under the law. So now after two or three chapters, the first two chapters, remember, focused on salvation justification by faith alone. Then in chapter 3, he shifts gears and begins to talk more about sanctification, that not only is justification by faith alone in Christ alone, but the spiritual life is based on the same principle. And I am know I am repeating this to death, but I will repeat it even more because it is so contrary to what we are normally taught and what the first blush response of most Christians is to the spiritual life. We live in the church age. This is a unique age. Before the cross was the age of Israel, the age of the Jews. Then came the cross in this 33-year period of the life of Christ. is a transitional period known as the age of the Incarnation. In the Incarnation, you have Jesus Christ, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, setting the precedent for the church age spiritual life. The precedent for the spiritual life of the church age, which extends from its birth at Pentecost to the rapture of the church when all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, both alive and dead, will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. He doesn't return to the earth. And then that is followed by seven-year tribulation. And then the Lord returns at the second advent. But during this church age, there is a unique spiritual life, unique in all of human history. And the precedent is established by Jesus Christ when he was on the earth because he lived his spiritual life on the basis of the filling of God the Holy Spirit. So the precedent is not back in the Old Testament in the law. And this is a common mistake. It's been common throughout church history for theologians and for denominations to make this mistake. The church age is predicated upon a unique ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is called the filling of the Holy Spirit. Never before in human history was every single believer indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. But the indwelling is distinct from the filling. It is the, I think... The best way to describe it is the indwelling is permanent. I for indwelling. The indwelling is permanent and part of the foundation. It's part of the 40 things that God gives us at the moment of salvation. But the filling is based upon it. But the filling is different and it is temporary. And we can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit when we sin. Now, in the Old Testament, only a very few believers were ever ever received the Holy Spirit. And for the sake of differentiating it, we'll call this the endowment. They were endued with power, but that power was not for their spiritual life. Let me make that clear. 
the spiritual life of those who were endued by God the Holy Spirit was the same as every other Old Testament believer. It was based upon the faith rest drill in relationship to God's revelation given during the Old Testament. The endowment was always related to the theocratic rulership of the kingdom and to the administration of the theocracy. Now, a theocracy, theocracy means God's rule. And Israel's government was set up as a theocracy where God was the head of the government under the Mosaic law. It wasn't until the people rebelled against God and said, we want to be like everybody else and have a king like everybody else, that God authorized a monarchy, and their first king was Saul, and God gave them what they wanted, gave them a man who looked regal. He looked like a king ought to look. Sort of reminds me historically of, who was it? Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding, I can't remember what party he was affiliated with, but for those of you who don't know it, that was the first presidential election where women were allowed to vote. And the reason Warren G. Harding was chosen as a candidate was he looked like he, he was handsome and he was tall and he would get the, the ladies' vote. And that's why Warren G. Harding was chosen and he became president. And there was a scandal associated with him called the Teapot Dome Scandal that was one of the biggest presidential scandals of any time because uh, the focus wasn't on his, his character or his leadership ability but on his looks outward appearance. And God warned the nation of Israel that if they got a king, then their taxes would increase and they would start to lose some of their freedoms. And that's what happens. The more you increase the size of government, the more you increase the tax burden on the people, the more you increase the tax burden on the people, the more you take away their freedoms. And that was one principle upon which this nation was founded. In the Old Testament, you had the temporary endowment of the Holy Spirit. You had a few kings, prophets, Judges and the uh, craftsmen who built the tabernacle who were imbued, endued with God the Holy Spirit for the purpose of fulfilling their task, their role as a leader in the theocracy. Whatever that role was, the, the temporary endowment of God the Holy Spirit was for the fulfillment of that role. If they were one of the judges, it was in the arena of military leadership, so that when Gideon, the literal Hebrew is he was clothed with God the Holy Spirit, or when God the Holy Spirit came upon him, and it's interesting to study the Hebrew prepositions associated with this. It never uses the Hebrew preposition for in. It uses prepositions like upon and to. And so it differentiates between the indwelling where God the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence inside the believer today. So in the Old Testament, it was temporary and it was designed for carrying out various administrative functions within the theocracy of Israel. And everything changes in the church age and from the day of Pentecost on, every single believer is permanently indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation, we are also filled with God the Holy Spirit. But what happens is we sin. And this is one of the issues that is so critical to understand today, is that we have two spheres of relationship described within the Scriptures. The first describes our positional realities. These are true whether you know know about them or not. The Bible says this is true. We are entered into union with Christ 
Through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as part of the positional realities, God gives us at the moment of salvation 40 distinct things, all but one of which are irrevocable. Thirty-nine are irrevocable, and one is revocable, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit, because the filling of the Holy Spirit is uniquely related to our experience in time, our day-to-day walk with the Lord. At the moment of salvation, we're filled with God the Holy Spirit, but at some point, not soon thereafter, we commit some sin, and we're immediately out of fellowship. We're no longer filled with God the Holy Spirit. Now, whether that is a sin of cognizance or a sin of ignorance does not matter. I was discussing this with a a fellow graduate of Dallas Seminary not long ago and was asking him how he understood these issues. And he said, well, carnality is when you're out out here for a long time, to put it in our terms, when you're you're continually committing a known sin. But if it's an unknown sin or a small sin then you're still uh, in fellowship. And I said, okay, if God is absolute righteousness, whether we know it's a sin or not, doesn't that still mean that, that it's a violation of the absolute righteousness of God? And he hasn't answered my email yet. <laughs> now, we're going to come to, it's important now to realize that you need to be here on Sunday morning, first hour, and for James on Wednesday night, because these are really coming together in a very fascinating way. In James chapter 2, a passage that we will be approaching in a couple of weeks, get down to chapter 2, verse 10, after talking about the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself, James says, but if you show partiality... Now, for most people, showing partiality or having a little bit of a a racial prejudice or a little bit of economic prejudice or academic prejudice where you're just, you know, you're going to favor one person over another will not make the the top ten sins in their list of sins. But James is using this, as we saw this last Wednesday night, as a particular illustration of a problem going on with this congregation. And he says, but if you demonstrate partiality or show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one minor point has become guilty of all. Now, why am I going to that particular passage? As we have seen in James, the whole issue here is the spiritual life in James 2. It's not talking about salvation. It's not talking about the guilt that is accrued to an individual by the law showing them that they're unable to save themselves. This is not addressed to unbelievers saying if you've broken one small part of the law, then you're guilty of the whole thing and therefore you stand in need of salvation. Salvation and justification, phase one salvation, is not the point in James 2. The point here is talking about phase two, the spiritual life. And so what James says is if you break the law, violate the law, and the law here is the law of liberty. Interesting that he uses that term. He's not talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about New Testament mandates. That if you violate the mandates of God in one minor point, known or unknown, you violate all of them. That means 
that you violate the perfect righteousness of God and you're going to be out of fellowship. Fellowship with God is broken at that particular point. And you have grieved the Holy Spirit and quenched the Holy Spirit. And the Bible calls this category out here being fleshly. It's under the control of the sin nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, Now you are walking like mere men. In other words, now you are living your spiritual life on the basis of your own ability. Just like an unbeliever. And it's always important to remember that anything the unbeliever can do is not the spiritual life. And unbelievers can be very, very moral. Morality was given by God for the entire human race, believer and unbeliever alike. So advancement in the spiritual life is not by being moral, by pulling yourself up by your ethical bootstraps and doing good. It is uniquely predicated upon this ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we're out of fellowship. The only way to recover fellowship is through 1 John 1.9. And there we are forgiven, fellowship is restored, and we are once again filled with the Holy Spirit and ready, positioned to move forward. Now, the reason I go through all of this, is, to, as by way of intro, introduction, is to demonstrate the significance of the topic in Galatians 3 and 4. We are building to a crescendo in Galatians chapter 5, and Paul is showing through these chapters, that this spiritual life that we have, that has been given to us in the church age, is incredible. It's unique. Never before in human history has there been anything like it, and it is predicated completely upon God the Holy Spirit. If we look at things historically, what God demonstrated in the age of Israel is that man cannot achieve spirituality on his own. That's the law not only demonstrated that man cannot achieve uh, salvation through morality, but the law is a failure in terms of producing the character of God and the fruit of the Spirit. And so God has to do everything for man, not just at salvation, but also in terms of the spiritual life. But people get confused. We feel like we have to do something to impress God. We feel like we have to do something in order to gain God's blessing. We have to be involved in something in order to, or doing something, following some list of rules in order to advance spiritually. And Paul is demonstrating in these chapters that this is absolutely impossible and it is the path of slavery and destructive to spiritual freedom. So in verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4, he says to the Galatians, you who want to be under the Mosaic Law, you who want to put yourself under the Mosaic Law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, have you really paid attention to where that's going to take you? What are the implications of putting yourself under the law? Is that going to get you what you think it's going to get you? Verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. And last time we began our analysis of this by reviewing... In Genesis chapter 17 and in Galatians chapter 21, the history underlying this. Abraham begins as Avram. Avram has a wife who is his half-sister, Sarai. And God has promised to Avram and Sarai a child. And as the years go by and Sarai is up around 75 or 76 years of age and 
Avram is about 86, nine years apart, so she would be 77. And they're still childless. So they have to come up, Sarai comes up with a unique solution. And that solution is to give her slave, Hagar, to Avram as a wife, which was a common social practice at the time, that if the wife was childless, then her slave would be taken as a wife, and the heir, notice, and that's a key term here that we've studied in Galatians, inheritance, that the heir would come from the slave. So Hagar is elevated in her position, and on the wedding night, uh, she is impregnated, and she has a son, Ishmael. And Ishmael is born, and then God says he is not the promised one. And so now there is conflict in the household, and Hagar runs away while she is pregnant. God promises that he will take care of them. If she returns, she returns and lives in the household. And then 13 years later, there will be the birth of Yitzhak, laughter, joy that comes as a result of God fulfilling his promises. And there is laughter in the household of now Abraham and Sarah. That's the background that we studied last time, and we're reviewing it again this time in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. We need to review this again and again because this whole incident, everything in the life of Abraham, is crucial to understanding how God is relating to mankind in the world. God gave a covenant to Abraham. The Abrahamic Covenant's first unconditional personal covenant God gives with man, with a man specifically, or excuse me, he gives it with Noah earlier, but in terms of a panorama of history. This is the first covenant that lays out the scope of human history. How does that show up? Pretty good. Abrahamic Covenant is given in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, 15, 7 through 21. Uh, chapter 17 and chapter 22, 15 through 18. There are three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. It has a land paragraph. There's a specific piece of real estate given to Abraham. The Jews have never controlled all of that real estate. So this is an unconditional covenant, and that means that eventually God will give the entire piece of land to Israel, and it will come under their dominion. But that won't take place until Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. The second provision of the covenant is a seed that is expanded upon in the Davidic covenant and it has reference uh, primarily to the Lord Jesus Christ as we saw in our study of Galatians chapter 3 but has a broad, can have a broader expanded meaning to all of his descendants. At the time God initially made the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was childless. And then there will be a blessing, universal blessing to all mankind, not just his physical descendants, and that's expanded upon in the New Covenant. And that is specifically referred to, and I think it's a, an important referral, back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's an important verse to remember because that associates for the first time in, in, in Revelation that as part of this blessing, there is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that brings in the idea that 
of, of the unique ministry of God the Holy Spirit in relationship to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So, in terms of points reviewed, God promised Avram an heir, a descendant from his own loins. He initially thought it would be his servant Eliezer, but God promised that it would be a, a descendant from his own loins. Secondly, as time passed, Sarai was barren. Rather than waiting upon the Lord to fulfill his promise, she did what most of us do. We began to panic a little bit. Time's going by. I'm getting too old. I've gone through menopause. I can't have children anymore. God's promised me a child. How in the world can this take place? And we need to continue to wait for God even though everything looks impossible. Because what happened was that she offered a human solution. And the human solution often looks good in the immediate present. But the long-term effects are disastrous. The human solution ultimately is a disastrous solution and creates additional problems. And the entire, the root of all of the Arab and Jewish conflicts to date stem from Sarai's decision to offer Hagar to Abraham as his wife. That's the general historical background. So we come to... Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 16, and let's begin to read this, the passage. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now let's stop a minute and just hit some high points of exegesis as we go through this passage. It starts off, for this reason, from faith. This is ek plus the genitive of pistis. We have seen in our study of, J of uh, James on Wednesday night that pistis is a crucial word for interpreting a passage. P-I-S-T-I-S. -I now, first glance, when most of us read the word pistis, we think of it in terms of its basic meaning which is an internal conviction of truth. And as such, we want to relate that to the operation of the faith rest drill, trusting in God and resting upon His provision and promises. That is the active sense of faith, believing something to be true and resting upon it. But there is also a passive sense of pistis, which is what is believed. And that is the body of truth that is believed. And in this sense, it refers to the doctrinal principles as given in the Word of God. What is believed? Now, the question we have to ask here is, do we have an active or passive sense of pistis in this particular passage? And I think that it is an active sense of pistis. We're talking about Abraham using the faith rest drill here. And he is the first stage of the faith rest drill is mixing the promises of God with faith. That's stage one of the faith rest drill. Stage two of the faith rest drill is developing doctrinal rationales. Now we've learned some promises and we begin to learn some things about God and we begin to reason on the basis of those doctrines, that if God is omniscient and He knows all the knowable, then He knew every problem that I'll ever face in life. 
So if God knows every problem that I will face in life, and God is omnipotent, then God has made a perfect solution. And if He is perfect righteousness, then God has devised a perfect solution for every problem I'll face in life. That's reaching, uh, that's using a doctrinal rationale, and then reaching a, using it to reach a doctrinal conclusion. These are the three stages of the faith rest drill. Now, Abraham has a specific promise of God that has been reiterated by God several times to him that God will give him many descendants. Now, at the point in which God begins to give these promises to Abraham, Abraham and Sarah are in their 60s and they are childless. And so, but it's still possible at that time they lived to be about 120 to 140 years of age, and so the age of fertility would be much longer than it is now. So when God first gave that promise, it seemed reasonable to them, but as time went by and nothing happened, then they began to worry, especially Sarai. There would not be an heir. There would not be someone to pass on the property. Let's go on to verse 17. Uh, it's through faith, for this reason, from faith, from the source of faith, the faith rest drill, in order that, according to grace, that it might be in accordance with grace, literally in the Greek, kata, plus the accusative of charis, which is a word for grace, K-A-T-A-C-H-A-R-I-S. And kata means according to a standard. God's standard throughout all of human history is grace. Grace means God does all the work and man simply rests in that work, accepts it by faith. Faith is non-meritorious and puts all of its, all of the merit resides in the object of faith. So the object of faith in this case is the promise of God. For this reason, from faith, that in accordance with grace, in order that, or for the purpose that the promise may be certain to all descendants. God is going to bring certainty here on the basis of grace. And He's going to make it very clear that His whole operation and plan for Abraham is on the basis of grace. So immediately we're going to have a contrast set up between grace and works. That it may be certain to all descendants, not only those who are of the law, so we'll put law over here, this is another phrase that's used for this category, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, As it is written, A father of many nations... Have I made you? This is a direct quote from Genesis 17:5. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, there are several things that we ought to take note of here. First of all, in terms of the quote, a father of many nations, I have made you. When God first made the promise to Abraham, his name was Avram. Literally in the Hebrew, it looks like this. It 
The first part, the AB, means Father. The second part means Exalted One. So the name meant Exalted Father. Well, it wasn't a reference to Abram, but a reference to his own father and his own lineage that he came from an aristocratic family. And then God gives him a new name in Genesis 17.5, and it is Avraham, which means or has a significance of meaning father of a multitude. Now, we went over this last time. Av, again, is the Hebrew for father, but there's no Hebrew word Raham. There is a Hebrew word Naham, which means multitude. And like most of the names that are given in the, in the Old Testament, there's sort of a popular etymology that this is the name and this is what it means. And there are these paranomasias, uh, play on words, that are used in order, they're, they're like mnemonic devices to help people remember the doctrinal points and different issues. So when you heard the name Abraham, it sounded like Abnaham, and that meant father of multitudes. Now here he is, he's still childless. And now he has this name, father of multitudes. And for this was given. This name was given to him after the birth of Ishmael. But he still is not the father of the seed, and he's wandering around. And his friends and family members would say, "Why are you now calling yourself father of multitudes?" So it would give him an opportunity to give his testimony. Say, "Well, the Lord appeared to me, and the Lord has promised me that He will make me the father of multitudes." So for 13 years, he had the opportunity to use this and to express, use this as an opportunity to tell people about the grace of God. Sarah, too, received a new name. Her original name was Sarai, which meant my princess. The I ending is the first person singular suffix, meaning my. So it's my princess. And her name was changed to Sarah, meaning princess, just simple princess. God is now emphasizing their new position within the plan of God. So the first part of 4.17 says, As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now at first glance, when we look at this, it would seem to us, and we, our minds go to resurrection, giving life from the dead. But the context is not talking about resurrection. The context is talking about a dead womb, that Sarah has a dead womb, and that God is the one who can make a dead womb reproductively alive. So that is the primary interpretation of the passage. And that led us last time to review the doctrine of the barren woman. There are six barren women in Scripture. And we covered those last time. The first three are Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, who are the wives of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the point of their barrenness is that God is going to show that this new Jewish race has a miraculous physical birth as well as a supernatural uh, spiritual birth. Because in each case, they, with the case of Sarah, there are two children. There's Ishmael and Isaac the younger. Isaac is the only one of the two who is regenerate, and so the line goes through the regenerate one. 
Then Rebekah has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the younger. Jacob is the only one that has a, a spiritual rebirth and is a believer. And so the line descends through Jacob. And then Rachel is one of is the the mother of two of the of the uh, many sons of Jacob uh, of uh, that produce the twelve tribes of Israel. Rebecca is the wife of Isaac. Rachel is the wife of Jacob, and that produces two of the twelve uh, children who make up the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, this is the beginning of the Jewish race, and emphasizes their unique physical birth and spiritual birth that God has brought life out of death. Then there is the mother of Samson, who is barren. And then there is Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel. So that gives us five. And then there is Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist. That gives us six. These six women were all barren, and their children are uniquely used in the plan of God and the plan of salvation in the Old Testament leading up to John the Baptist as the precursor and announcer of, of the Messiah. And all six are types of the Virgin Mary. Though, though their wombs were dead, hers has not yet been opened. So Mary, out of a womb, out of a virgin womb, has a virgin conception and a virgin birth, a miraculous virgin birth for our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the reason barrenness is emphasized in the Scriptures, to show this principle that God can bring forth physical life where there is physical death. And ultimately, this illustrates the principle that God is able to make that which is spiritually dead, spiritually alive. And that we are all born spiritually dead, but through Jesus Christ, through faith alone and Christ alone, we, God the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us spiritually alive. So Abraham's focus is on God who is able to give physical life to the dead womb of Sarah and call into being that which does not exist, in other words, to bring to life a son who will be the uh, focus of the promise. Verse 18. And hope against hope, he believed. And what that means is that against all odds, as hopeless as the situation looked from a human viewpoint, he was confident that God would fulfill the promise. The Greek word translated hope has a much different meaning than what we nor how we normally use hope in the English language. It's E-L-P-I-S. The way we use hope is sort of an optimistic wish. I... I'm going to go skiing in a couple of weeks, so I say, I hope it snows. We don't know if it will or not, but we hope it does, so we'll have a good time. Or we hope the weather will be good uh, for planting, working in the garden or whatever it may be. We have this optimistic wish, but that is foreign to the Greek concept of hope. The Greek concept of hope is a confident expectation. It carries with it the nuance of certainty. It is the fruit of faith. When we have faith, we have an inner conviction of the truth of something, of the truth of God's Word. And that gives birth to hope, a confident expectation looking forward to its the fulfillment of the promise. 
So that is the point of verse 18. Hope against hope, Abraham believed in order that he might become a father of many nations. And again, this is the exercise of the faith rest drill. The object of his belief is the promise of God that he will become a father of many nations. That was the promise. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. God kept waiting to make sure it was obvious to one and all that they were too old to have children. If God had given them Isaac, when he first gave the promise, and they were in their 60s, people could say, oh, well, this is unusual, but every now and then somebody that age has a child. God waited until Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 99 before Sarah conceived. And there was obvious that it was a miracle. Now, in this passage, we read in verse 19, not being and without becoming weak, in faith, and this is literally weak in the in faith rest drill, he contemplated his own body. What was true about Abraham should be true for us. When we are operating on the faith rest drill, the truth of God's Word, the truth of the Word of God, should be more true to us than our experience. No matter what our reason may tell us, because we may have faulty reasoning or faulty presuppositions, no matter what our experience may tell us, when the Word of God is more real to us than anything else, that's when we're operating on the faith rest drill. There's going to come a time in your life when you're going to be met with incredible tragedy, with heartache, with difficulty, with problems that far beyond anything you ever imagined that you're going to face. And... The only thing that's going to get you through that is the ten stress busters and the problem-solving devices given in the Word of God. And when that happens, the Word of God will have to be more real to you than anything in your experience because that experience is going to be so overwhelming and so powerful that the only thing that can keep you from collapsing in total emotional instability is going to be the truth of God's Word. And it's going to be too late to get that When that crisis occurs, when the crisis occurs, you better be prepared, and it takes years of spiritual growth to be prepared for it. It's just like working out in the gym. If you sit around and you're a couch potato for 20 or 30 years, and then all of a sudden something takes place that requires tremendous physical stamina and physical strength, it's too late to start working out. You need to have been working out and keeping those muscles strong and flexible for all those years. And that's the same thing that's true in the spiritual life. That's why it's so crucial for us to be at Bible class on a regular basis. This Word of God is our nourishment. We study it not so we can gain all kinds of interesting insights and know all about the Bible, but because it feeds our soul. And by feeding our soul on the spiritual truth of God's Word, we are strengthened. We are strengthened internally. It builds a fortress around our soul. The Old Testament says, In thee, Lord, you are my, my stronghold and my fortress. You are my defense. I will not be greatly moved. 
And how do we get that stronghold and that fortification? We get it only from the Word of God. Now, there may be a lot of human, human viewpoint techniques and skills and things you can pick up here and there that seem as if they're going to satisfy and solve the human problems that we face. But when we solve those problems on the basis of human viewpoint solutions, we run the same risk that Sarah ran into by using Hagar as her solution. Ultimately, it's going to collapse because it will not stand the test of time or the test of eternity. So that is why we have to make sure that we are consistently studying the Word of God and taking it in because just as we eat on a regular basis, in fact, I don't think any of you, at least none of you look as if you've missed too many meals in the last week or two. And yet the sad thing is most believers think they can get by with just one meal a week in terms of the spiritual life. And then they sleep through most of that. They just sort of pick up the desserts and eat the good parts and leave the the, the vegetables and everything else sitting on the plate. God is not kidding around about this spiritual life that he has given us. It is incredible. It is phenomenal. And it is our responsibility to nourish it and to grow. And the key to understanding that is the Word of God and then mixing that with the faith rest drill. This is what we find in Abram, in Abraham. God's Word is more real to him than his own experience. He looks at his body and it is absolutely unable to produce a child. And yet, look at verse 20. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. He's a hundred years old. It's been years since he and Sarah have been intimate. He doesn't have the ability. She doesn't have the ability. And yet he still firmly believes God is going to give them a son. Experience is not the issue. The Word of God is the issue. If God has said it, there used to be a little, a li- one of these little uh, uh, bumper stickers refrigerator magnets I remember seeing years ago that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't know if any of you can remember that. There's something wrong with that. It's the wrong order. God said it, that settles it. <laughs> the issue is whether or not we believe it. It's not settled by our believing it. Being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Well, we won't go any further in that particular passage. What's important to notice is that Isaac came into the world as a result of a supernatural physical birth and, a, and then later in life he had a supernatural spiritual birth and his birth is directly related to the faith rest drill in Abraham. This is the beginning of the Jewish race, and Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. Let's. Romans to Romans chapter 9, and then we'll get back to our passage in Galatians chapter 4. Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though they. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not Israel who are descended from Israel. Now that is making an issue, Paul makes the issue here that physical birth is not the issue. 
There are many Jews that are born Jews physically, and they are physical descendants from Abraham, but that is not the issue. Remember that when we come to our study in the second hour as Jesus confronts the Pharisees, because that was the emphasis the Pharisees placed on things. As long as you are a descendant of Abraham, then you're okay. And what Paul says is not all Israel is Israel, descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. Now, let's look at our terminology here. Let me back up the overhead a minute. See how far back we have to go. Too far. I missed it. Well, I wrote all around it. We'll grab a clean slate here and start over. Two categories we're dealing with here. On the one hand is grace, also called promise. Let's link these words together. The promise is by faith. On the other hand, in contrast to this, you have the law, you have descendants according to the flesh, and we have works. This is the contrast. It's not, there's not a mix going on here, a little of this and a little of that. Paul draws absolute distinctions between these two categories. These are absolutes. These are not relative. You're either here operating on grace and the promise of God or you're over here operating on law in the power of the flesh. Those are the only two options. You can't be somewhere in between. This is so crucial to understanding. This is the bottom circle. You're either outside or you're inside. There's no middle road here. Abraham's descendants are named through Isaac because he has a supernatural physical birth and a supernatural rebirth, and it's the supernatural, supernatural spiritual birth that is the issue. Not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So it's the children of the promise. And remember, Paul makes the point in Galatians chapter 3 that this promise is also related to the giving of the Holy Spirit in the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 4 and work our way through the analogy now. 4.22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Okay, let's look at our categories. This son born through the promise is Isaac. The son born over here is Ishmael. From Isaac, the promise descends. Ishmael is the father of all, or many of the Arab tribes. And there's a vast distinction between the two. The son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, that is, human viewpoint solutions to problems which just created further problems. And the son by the free woman through the promise, dependence upon God. Ishmael had a natural birth, but that is the end of it. Isaac's birth is supernatural and is the beginning of the development of the Jewish race. Remember this. What we're learning from this is that there is a distinction between promise and law. 
Isaac's birth depended exclusively on God, and the birth of Abraham was the product of human planning, human energy, and human effort. This is the issue when it comes down to the spiritual life. Is this going to be a life that's uniquely produced by God, or is this going to be a life that's produced in the power of the flesh? This is the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 3. Are you living, are you walking like mere men? We can imitate, the spiritual life to a certain degree can be imitated by walking in the power of the flesh. It's called morality. It's called ethics. It looks good. It has this external appearance of going to church regularly. You don't see it so much up here in this region, but if you go down south where uh, church attendance is still pretty much a cultural norm, then you will see a lot of people who think everything is great in their spiritual life because they're there every Sunday. But the rest of the week, it's not an issue in their thinking and it's not an issue in their life. Remember, anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. Morality is for both believers and unbelievers, and the spiritual life goes far beyond morality. It's not against morality. It's a higher standard than simple morality because it is a life that is uniquely based upon the promise of the Spirit associated with the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 24. This is allegorically speaking. Now, this is why we've taken so much time to go back through the Old Testament. And the, the modern concept of an allegory is a fictitious narrative that is given to make a point. The narrative itself, the events, the people, are not historically accurate. They're just fictitious. That's not the Greek concept of an allegory. The Greek concept and the biblical and the way in which Paul uses this is that the historical events actually took place as described and there are there is significance and importance to those historical people and those historical events. But under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, Paul is looking back and taking these events from the Old Testament and drawing further implications from them to drive home the point uh, drive home various points related to our spiritual life in the church age. He says, This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. So now we have two covenants. We have the Abrahamic covenant here, and we have the Mosaic covenant here. These are in conflict with one another because the Abrahamic covenant was the unconditional and everlasting and the Mosaic covenant was conditional and temporal. And they're going to be represented by Sarah on the one hand and Hagar on the other hand. These women represent two covenants. One from Mount Sinai. Okay, we're going, she's Mount Sinai. Sarah is going to be Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Mount Zion. So we have two covenants and two mountains. One from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. So over here, those who are descendants in this line are categorized as slaves. Bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now, who is the father of the Arabs? Ishmael. 
So Paul is developing, the, the way his argument's developing here, is he's saying if you want to follow the law, you're going outside the land of promise, outside the promised land, to the land of the Arabs, the land of Mount Sinai, and this is the region of slavery. And so you're putting yourselves in a position of being slaves to the law in order to try to achieve spirituality. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present, uh, the present Jerusalem. Okay, Mount Sinai equals the present Jerusalem. Why is that? Because the present Jerusalem was negative to the Word of God. They had rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah, and they held on to the, the, the law codes of the Pharisees, which was to take the Mosaic Law, and this is always what happens in religion, is first of all you'll have, uh, have the Bible give a general command. And we'll see this in the next hour about not working on the Sabbath. And then you come out with, okay, we're going to develop about 15 different ways in which that applies, and then these, this is tradition. And then these, these uh, 15 precepts become set in stone as tradition, and now they have the same authority as the mandate, original mandate from God. But that's false. This is a human system. All God said was don't work on the Sabbath. And so they set up this system, and as, as, the, as it, that increased, it developed even more until they had hundreds and hundreds of different mandates. And, and it's much like the, uh, the tax code at the IRS today. It's not even employees of the IRS know all the code and can give you the accurate answers when it comes to filling out your taxes. So that's the way it became. And the, uh, the Pharisees had so many different codes and so many different rules that they had developed that not, e- not any of them agreed with all of them or held to all of them. And so no matter what was going on, you would always be guilty of some violation at some point or time. And so you end up always running around saying, have I broken the law? Have I done this wrong? Do I need to give a sacrifice for this? And the focus is on your sin and your failure and not on the fact that sin was completely paid for by Christ and not on the issue of grace. So that ends up, you end up becoming enslaved to this human system of conduct. And so there's a contrast between the present Jerusalem and then the Jerusalem above, which is related to grace and, and the future coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of the promises given to uh, Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 26, But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And this is simply a quote from the Old Testament in Isaiah 54, chapter 1, which emphasizes the grace of God in providing a solution to the problem of Sarah's barrenness and the solution to the problem. The problem of Hagar and trying to solve it through a human viewpoint created more problems and created desolation instead of the solution of freedom which comes through the descendants of Sarah. So you have freedom over here and you have slavery over here and the contrast continues. Verse 28, And you, brethren... 
like Isaac, are children of promise. Now he's driving the point home to us. We, as believers in the church age, are descendants of Abraham by faith alone in Christ alone. We are children of the promise, just like Isaac. Now, because of our position as children of the promise, we have true spiritual freedom. We are not enslaved to the law, so why go back and put ourselves in that position of being enslaved to the law? Verse 29, But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael, you can just imagine it, Ishmael was 13 years old when Isaac was born. Now you all have had a little experience, I think, with adolescent boys. I don't think anybody can be more difficult to deal with, and more of a persecutor than an adolescent male. And so you can just imagine what it was like growing up in that household because what happened when Isaac was born was Ishmael, who up to that time had been the designated heir, lost his inheritance. And the inheritance goes to the son of promise, and the inheritance does not belong to the person enslaved to the law, but belongs to the person who lives on the basis of grace and operates in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's been the thrust of this whole chapter, back from verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. And there we were introduced to the whole concept of inheritance. So, verse 29 says, But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. There is always going to be a war between legalism and grace. There is, you are always going to run in to the antagonism of the religious crowd. Those who are under the law hate those who are teaching grace. Now, we're not espousing some form of antinomianism here that believers can just go out and do whatever they want to. The freedom that we have in Christ is not a freedom to sin and get away with it. The freedom that we have in Christ is a freedom to live for Christ without worrying about failure. And what happens in religion is the focus is always on your failure and the motivation is always on guilt. How many, times can, how many world religions or religious groups can you think of where it is almost axiomatic that, that uh, the mothers motivate their children by guilt? That's because the whole motivation within that religious system is based upon guilt. Why? Because the focus is always on failure and having to keep all the little rules and regulations, whereas in Christianity the issue is on success. That's why you have 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 is not a license to sin, but it is a license to succeed. So that when we fail, we know that our failure is not the issue. The issue is the grace of God who's taking care of the failure and we can recover and keep growing without having to focus in guilt on whatever failures come into our lives. So the legalist will always persecute the person who is grace-oriented. But what, and then verse 30, But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Application. Get rid of the legalism. Verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So get rid of the legalists in your midst and reject all legalism, because legalism will destroy your spiritual life. Now, all of this that we've gone over in this passage sets up the next chapter. 
It's brilliant how Paul develops his argumentation here, and he has set up the two categories between the children of promise and the children of, of the slave, and how he is going to shift to focus on freedom and the freedom that we have in Christ versus the slavery to the law. And we'll get into that when we begin chapter 5 next week. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the magnificent grace that you have given us. From eternity past, you planned a perfect salvation for us, a salvation that was not based on anything we do, but was completely based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not sure of their salvation, not certain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would make that certain. All that is necessary is that we put our faith exclusively in Jesus Christ. Forming words and thought alone, all we have to say is, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's all that's necessary. From that point on, you enter into the family of God and you have eternal life which can never be lost, can never be forfeited. Father, now we pray that we could, you would remind us of the things that we have studied this morning relative to legalism, to law and grace. Help us to understand these things and apply them to our spiritual life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.